Well, welcome to a Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. So glad that you've joined us today for another conversation about the stuff that we are, well, the stuff, the things, the things, was it the Rich Mullen said that record 30 years or so ago, Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth. Uh, such a great title for the idea that there are things that uh, come and go in our culture that are kind of uh, seasonal, as it were. And then there are things that happen that are eternal, that are going to hang around forever. And may we never lose sight as we are preparing for yet another uh, election today. You know, I, I always thought, wasn't it? No, Iowa, the Iowa caucuses are first. But New Hampshire is one of the first states to actually vote in the election. And New Hampshire is having their primary today. Now, I don't know who got together and decided that they were going to uh, take the dice, as it were, the dice and, and shuffle them and throw them. We've been having, I mean, we talk about Super Tuesday here on the Bottom Line Show, gearing up for the 2022 midterms. We have been having a primary basically every week since March. Remember all the Republican debates in the run up to what turned out to be Donald Trump's eventual election to becoming the 45th president? of the United States and people said, Republicans enough. There's too many of you. And they, if they were going to be a rock band, they could choose the name in excess, right? That Australian group that chose, actually they were given the name because they were playing in some establishment and there were six guys. They barely fit on the stage. And, and uh, the proprietor of the establishment said, Oh, you ought to call yourselves in excess. Why? Cause there's too many of you and you're too loud. <laughs> that it stuck. Um, that's what we had with the Republican uh, debates in 2016. Well, now when you have a different primary happening, I mean, imagine being a New Hampshire voter and being a little, you know, wobbly on certain issues. They're having this election today, September 13th, and then the general elections, November 8th. <laughs> Talk about not giving anybody enough time to, to politic or to campaign. I'll be curious to see, and I haven't done enough research on this, I need to, uh, to see whether or not this is part of that strategy. You remember there was a big hue and cry over the so-called election integrity laws that were all designed to be racist and sexist and whatever. And as it turns out, from what I've read, every state that passed a so-called election integrity law has had better turnout and more accurate counting of the votes among registered voters than they had in previous elections. In fact, two big states kind of paint a picture. Both of them are considered red right now, Georgia and Texas, though Texas is probably a little more purple. There are more liberals moving into Texas all the time saying, oh, we don't like Texas. It's a terrible place. I don't like their politics. Let's move there anyway because the tax advantages are great. And when you look at the outcomes of their primaries that were actually held during primary season, uh, you heard the hue and cry from Democrats all over the place about, you know, how the the the, the Trump effect and Republicans. It was racist and the turnout. The registration and turnout in the Georgia primaries was higher than it was in the general election and higher than it was in the uh, in the runoff election for the Senate back in January of 2021 by a factor of like 100 percent. I mean, that basically doubled the turnout. The law that was passed, the Election Integrity Act that was passed by and signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, they have a Republican supermajority in the House and their state assembly and Senate. And they've got all big, you know, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, you know, all the GOP. And all we heard from the left was they're making it tougher for women. They're making it tougher for minorities, blah, blah, blippity, blah. And next thing you know, you look at the end result and what's the end result? All across the board, Republicans, more Democrats, more 
people of color, more women, the voter numbers were up all the way across the board in Georgia because the Election Integrity Act made it possible for more people to vote legally. All we were told was it's going to have restrictions and the Republicans don't want you to vote and you're going to be disenfranchised. And then in Georgia, guess what happened? Yeah, more people voted. Then in Texas, God forbid this happened. Texas passed similar laws in terms of when you could vote, how, when you had to be registered to vote, about mail-in, all that type of stuff. And when they had their primary, which I believe was in March, it seems like long, long ago and far, far away. You can, can't you see the black background with the white lettering scrolling up the screen? A long time ago, in a galaxy far away, Texas had their 2022 primaries. And they had an increase in turnout over all of voters but a decline in the number of Republican voters who showed up and an increase in the number of registered Democrats. Now, that could have very easily been people who just kind of carpet bagged their way into the state and decided to vote. I get it. But maybe, just maybe, we're seeing more Democrats crossing the lines and voting Republican, and that might be a tactic, or it might be a sign of things to come. Remember in the 2016 election, we heard that during the primaries, we thought about it during the general election, and enough Democrats and independents jumped to the Republican ship to elect Donald Trump. He lost the popular vote. He ran the table on the Electoral College. So maybe that's what 2022 is going to look like. I'm not sure. But I know one of the big issues, well, there are two big issues that are, seem to be fueling the fire for the, the Democrat side of the equation. One of them is abortion. And one of them is the issue of the transgender right initiative. It seems like more and more people of the millennial and Generation Z demographic are identifying as transgender. As many as 7% of millennials identify as transgender, as many as 20% of Generation Z. Now, why does this matter for us, right? We're boomers, we're greatest generation, we're next, we're Generation X. The reason it matters to us is that voting block is the largest voting block in America. Doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not necessarily. If more millennials and Generation Z show up to vote, then greatest generation or baby boomers or generation X, they are going to run the table. That has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with math. And so that being the case, I think it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to what's happening. Why are so many younger people identifying as transgender? And that word there is key, identify. George Barna's research indicates that, that that's where I got the 20% number from. But why is this happening? Is it something in the food? Is it something in the water? Is it something in the media? Is it something, uh, any number of reasons why? Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics, there are two groups that follow this type of stuff. One is called the American Academy of Pediatrics. The, American, uh, the other is called the American College of Pediatricians. If you are looking for an organization that specializes in youth health issues, the American Academy of of American College of Pediatricians tends to be a bit more conservative, and the American Academy of Pediatrics appears to be bought and paid for by progressives. But the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics has been around longer. The American College of Pediatricians actually was started in 2002 as a response to this, uh, this study. Now, there have been some reports. Uh, one of them, uh, a, a study was put out by uh, the Manhattan Institute, a fellow Leo Sapper and pediatrician Julia Mason spoke about a study in pediatrics, which is the flagship journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, that was used to 
basically uphold the claim that the increase in transgender identity was not caused by social contagion, peer pressure, that it literally had another reason of which they really couldn't explain. Now, what's interesting is they put out a study as their backup that conducted by a guy by the name of Dr. Jack Turbin that said, look, here's the deal. Um, this study, now they're kind of walking back. Here's what they said. Pediatrics published a highly flawed 2020 study alleging that puberty blockers reduce suicide in teens. The journal even chose the article as its best of 2020, despite re receiving rebuttals that pointed out the rate of attempted suicide was twice as high among those in the puberty block group. And Dr. Turbin didn't do any control groups for the possibility that better mental health outcomes might be the result of factors other than hormonal uh, intervention. This is a group that talks to 67,000 members. And what's interesting is when it came to whether or not those members would endorse this article and this theory, you know how many people actually endorsed it? 57 of 67,000. The reality is more and more science is coming forward and saying the reason why so many young people identify as transgender has nothing to do with how they feel in terms of their own sexuality. It has everything to do with just that word, identification. They know somebody who's wrestling with gender dysphoria and they identify as transgender to kind of be supportive for them. John Stone Street writing about it in the uh, Prison Fellowship Breakpoint Journal saying, look, he wrote an article that had tons of insight on this called All the Cool Kids Are Transitioning. And apparently the science is backing him up. So why is the American Academy of Pediatrics not acknowledging what everybody seems to acknowledge? And that is it's not the diet. It's not the clothes you wear. It is really more the company you keep and the media that keeps telling you all the boys want to be girls, all the girls want to be boys, everybody's transgender. The number of Generation Z who identify as transgender, by the way, it's one out of every five who do. That's a huge, I mean, for several million people in that demographic. But the vast majority of them do not dress that way. They don't act that way. They're not dating that way. They just identify that way. I'll tell you the danger of identification here if it doesn't have a healthy outlook uh, outlook and a release. Spent the weekend in Texas visiting my Texas kids. Well, we have two sets of Texas kids now. and um, But the grandson down there, Isaac. And if I, I was talking to his dad, Brian, about this, this issue, and he said, you know, quite frankly, if Isaac could identify as anything right now, it would be a robot. Now he's five. He has a very healthy, vivid imagination. And obviously, he does not want to be a robot but he loves playing with the robots. He will outgrow this stage. He has friends at his school that also like to play with those things and they wanna be robots too, for now. We call that childhood. Eventually, now, if you were 25 and was identifying as a robot, we'd be seeking professional help. But at age five right now, playing with his transformers and making robot -y type of noises, perfectly healthy for him. But why, especially in an election year, will the American Academy of Pediatrics not admit the obvious that anybody can see with outside of medicine? We'll put this article up at thebottomlineshow.com and you can have a look at it for yourself and maybe ask yourself the question too. Why does this seem to be such a huge campaign issue when really it's more of an issue of morality and emotions and preying upon people who are experiencing some genuine confusion and there are e simple answers. They're not always easy. In the meantime, or shall we say meanwhile, 
we turn our focus to what it's like when you think you have your life together, and then all of a sudden you wind up having a Joseph-like experience. You know Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, right? Victim of circumstances, had a family of dysfunction, was forced into slavery, sexual harassment, you name it, this guy experienced all of it. And yet God chose us a very valuable lesson about his life through everything he went through and exalted him above others in the Old Testament. Carol McLeod knows what that's all about. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a broad-end podcaster. And her weekly uh, blog, by the way, Joy for the Journey, has been named among the top 50 faith blogs for women. Her version devotionals have reached 4 million people worldwide. She's written a very personal story about her own existence through a Joseph-like season. It's called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. We have a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Carol McLeod joins me next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a look at something that is something that we in the body of Christ have a hard time with, and that is what happens when we look at our circumstances, we see the situation, and it doesn't look good. And then it feels like we're waiting forever for God to you know, speak, to act, to do what we want him to do. And uh, today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a look at a great new book on this topic. It's called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. The author is Carol McLeod. Carol's a best-selling author of 13 books, a weekly blog called Joy for the Journey, has been named to the top 50 faith blogs for women, writes a weekly column for ministry today, has version devotionals, hosts two podcasts. It's a miracle we got any time at all to talk with her about this new book. Carol McLeod, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Oh, thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me. I've been so excited about it. I love this word. Um, meanwhile, uh, what exactly does it mean? I mean, how do you, how are you using it to kind of set the thesis for this project here? Yeah. So, um, Roger, Joseph has always been my favorite Old Testament character. You know, some people have Esther or Ruth. For me, it's always been Joseph because his story reads like an unbelievable movie script. Right. Like, how could so many horrible things happen to one godly young man? Um, he was daddy's favorite, as you know. His dad gave him this coat, this gorgeous coat. Joseph was a dreamer. He heard from God, um, but his brothers hated him. So they beat him up. They threw him in a pit. They put animal blood on his coat. So daddy would think he was dead and they sold him into slavery. And all that's one chapter. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> Joseph's life. That's one chapter from the story. And so that's Genesis 37 that I just told you that rapid fire events. And the last verse of Genesis 37 says this. Meanwhile, Joseph was sold to Potiphar. And Roger, I kid you not, one day I was reading his story and that word meanwhile jumped off the page of scripture into my heart. And I just had this knowing that we all go through a meanwhile in life, don't mm -hmm. we? We yeah. all endure that time when our life has imploded, we hate our circumstances, we wonder where God is and we cannot imagine what he's up to. That's what a meanwhile is. Mm. And so meanwhile is the story of Joseph and it's the story of you and me as well. You know, this could almost be subtitled when bad things happen to good people, when you think yeah. about it. I mean, in that regard, but one of the things I, I'm so fascinated about with Carol McLeod's new book, this meanwhile, is the fact that when you look at Joseph iconically, we, we oftentimes think about you know, the deliverance part. We think about the, you know, the Queen Esther part, the, uh, you know, the Moses part, you know, all the, all the good parts. 
meanwhile takes us to the place where you say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not right. That's, I mean, these are all the, all the things that God tells us in scripture to set our eyes upon, you know, what is beautiful and pure and noble and just and everything like that. None of that happened to Joseph, even though he's his father's favorite. Uh, talk about how that has impacted your life, Carol, and your writing and your ministry, even your own family. Oh man, Roger, that, that's a loaded question. But I think what we need to realize is that the Lord didn't promise that our lives would be perfect. He promised that he'd be with us. He promised that when we go through the fire, he'll be with us. He promised when we go through a flood, he'll be with us. And so that's the promise we hang on to in Joseph's story. And listen, Roger, my family is not perfect. Is yours? No, <laughs> we we all, Yeah, I know. We all have challenges, heartbreaking challenges. As a matter of fact, Roger, when I was um, in the editing process of, of this book, we had a major, major traumatic event in, in our family. It was, mm. it's hard. We're all healthy. We're all fine. But let me tell you, our world fell apart mm. and we're still picking up the pieces. And during that time, when I was editing the book and trying to take care of my family and my grown kids and the grandchildren, and it was Christmas and I'm up all night with broken hearts and I'm cooking. And, and I just, I said, Lord, the Bible tells me that you were with Joseph. You were with him in Potiphar's house. You were with him in prison. You were with him in the palace. Lord, what did you say to him? I got to know. Father, what did you say to Joseph? You know, Roger, it's interesting that with other people in the Bible, it tells us what God said to them. Mm -hmm. um, God told Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. God told Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to speak through you. I'm going to use you. But as far as I can tell in my study, scripture doesn't tell us what God mm. said to Joseph. There's no, thus saith the Lord right. in Joseph's story. And you know what, Roger? That's our story too. <laughs> so often we think, where is my, thus saith the Lord? Mm -hmm. where, but that morning when I was praying and saying, God, where, where are you in my story? What did you say to Joseph? And I felt like God just opened the windows of heaven for a minute. And he said, Carol, I was with Joseph and I did talk to him. And this is what I said. And I, mm. I thought, oh, good. This is going to be good. God, what did you say to Joseph? And I heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit say this. I said to Joseph, I'm not done yet. Mm. What? So, Roger, that's what a meanwhile is. It's when God is not done yet, but he's working all things together for good and for his glory. We can depend on it. You know, the story of Joseph is in Genesis, the last 13, 14 chapters of Genesis. And Genesis is not just the first book in the Bible. It's the foundation of the Bible. And there are foundational principles that are true from Genesis to Revelation. And one of them is that we serve a God who works all things together for good. Mm. We can build our lives on it. I love that. And hearing that from Carol McLeod today here on The Bottom Line as we're talking about her brand new book called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Carol, I love the way you kind of tied those 
that passage and that person together because when we talk about all things work together for good we think about the apostle paul you know and we him writing in the book of romans at the same time when you i was waiting with bated breath you know to hear what you what god said to you and what god said to joseph i was hoping beyond hope that it wasn't my grace is sufficient for you you know i mean that's the what i i, well, I always agonize with paul you know where he's like yeah hey, i got this sword of my the thorn of my flesh what the heck he says my grace is sufficient but isn't that the beauty and sometimes the challenge of being finite people who serve an infinite God, where our mindset says, God, I need you to speak to me in a language I understand and my need right now specifically. And God's thinking eternally saying, oh, ye of little faith. I mean, th this whole process for you writing this book, meanwhile, sounds like it's been a, a huge faith stretching experience for you. Well, it really has, you know, as you pointed out, meanwhile, is my 15th book. And with every book, there's a story. With every book, there's spiritual warfare. With every book, there are joys and victories. But most of all, writing a book is like giving birth to a baby. It's you bleed, <laughs> you scream, um, you need drugs. Um, but God is with you in the process. You know, I think it's very important for a writer or for a communicator to minister from a place of pain, because I think that pain is what qualifies us to minister to others. It's, it's not always a degree. It's not always a publishing contract or a, a great radio job, but what qualifies us to have a voice to a world in pain is that we're people of pain ourselves. Right. We've been through some stuff and we've learned about the character of God. And so meanwhile, my new book is a reflection of that. I'm talking with Carol McLeod today here on The Bottom Line about that new book called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. It's a look at Joseph's life and uh, ministry to help us, as you describe it in the book, uh, Carol, uh, th there's a Joseph in all of us. I mean, that his story is our story, even though it may not go through the exact paces that he did, in fact, go through in Genesis 37 and following. Um, it does. There's a lot of resemblance to the waiting, the 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 maltreatment, the uh, the abuse downright that he did experience. And yet God ultimately had a plan for him and got him to the point where he wanted him to be as uh, Joseph uh, you know, was instrumental in uh, carrying out God's will for his people, uh, especially as we see outlined in the Old Testament. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the so what part. So what does that mean for us right now? I mean, that's, a, that's great for Joseph. And we know people have gone through some tough times, but either I haven't had my Joseph moment yet, or quite frankly, we're American Christians. I don't want it. You know, quite frankly, what does Carol McLeod have to say to those who are maybe trying to avoid it, uh, dealing with the fact that this is their story as well? More of my conversation about the book. Meanwhile, meeting God in the wait with author Carol McLeod in just a moment. The bottom line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. 
Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. And remember, this is about healing. It's about restitution. It's not about gouging anyone. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's namely getting your car fixed, get your body back in order, taking care of the issues that were taken away as a result of your personal injury accident. No one knows the law and the Bible better than Stephanie Cover in this area. Learn more when you go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Law today. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Hope you're enjoying this conversation with author Carol McLeod. The book is called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And yes, we do have a copy of the book giveaway. Uh, Teresa's got it standing by. We're going to give it away officially at the conclusion of our conversation here. But I wanted to jump in here before we join the network up in whole uh, to let you know that you got first dibs. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. And as we were just talking about before the break here, obviously, each one of us has a Joseph story where you, you remember that time when someone did you wrong, you know, and, and it was a family member, it was a, a colleague, a good friend, and it hurt and it caused some real danger, real devastation in your life. And when you think about that time, think about how you can respond in one of two ways, either number one, you're angry, you're bitter, you're still hurt, or number two, you look to see where God is in the meanwhile. And while you're waiting for him and meeting him in that moment, I think back to the story of Jesus walking on the water to meet Peter. Remember, we always focus on Peter looking at Jesus and saying, I can walk on water as long as I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. But the minute I take my eyes off, I start to drown. But don't forget that what was so significant about that, not only was Peter walking on water, but so was Jesus. Jesus was walking and Peter says, call me out. And so he calls him out and they're both on the water together. Regardless of how difficult your circumstance is, God is with you in the midst of it. Jesus is right there walking on that water with you. Don't ever forget that. The conclusion of my conversation with Carol McLeod coming up next as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Tons of fun, this dialogue was. And I should point out again that uh, this was another one of those opportunities that we've had just now. You heard the audio recorded on our Zoom Pro machine, but the video for this interview will be up soon as well at myhopenow.com. That's myhopenow, those four words, um, three words, dot com. That's the fourth word. Um, and you can watch our conversation. Great interacting with Carol McLeod. The book, Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait is up at thebottomlineshow.com. 
And we have a copy of the book to give away as well. We'd love to place it in your hands, especially if you're going through a Joseph-like season. 800-227-5278-800-227-5278-800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the Bottom Line Show. We do have one copy of this book, but if you talk really nicely to Teresa, she might have something else that if you're not the winner of this book, something else she could win as well. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Newport Bay Mortgage will steer you in the right direction toward the truth about reverse mortgages. Owner Cliff enjoys educating every client and wants to debunk the misconceptions you may have heard. You'll see that an FHA-approved reverse mortgage gives you financial freedom. You can use it to pay bills, cover unexpected expenses, or watch your children and grandchildren enjoy themselves while you're still alive. Cliff informs you of the facts. Drawing from his 40 years of reverse mortgage experience, you must be 62 years or older for the FHA program and at least 55 for a conventional high-volume program. It doesn't affect any credit score points and can even be refinanced after one year. When considering ways to enjoy your liquidity in, before, or for retirement, you need Newport Bay Mortgage. Contact Cliff today. Visit kbrightradio.com slash reverse. That's kbrightradio.com slash reverse or 714-741-8080. NMLS 332959. Newport Bay Mortgage, an equal opportunity housing lender. For some reverse mortgage candidates, you need to be 62. Some as young as 55. Get the facts on what it means to get the kind of reverse mortgage that will help you leave a living legacy that you can enjoy right now with your kids and grandkids. Call Cliff at Newport Bay Mortgage today, 714-741-8080. Call now. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and thanks again to Carol McLeod, author, blogger, podcaster extraordinaire. Her book is called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. And we've got a copy we're giving away right now. If you are experiencing, as we described it, a Joseph season. We'll tell you what that means here in just a moment. We'll give you the phone number first. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 and following basically throughout the rest of the book. This is the guy who was the, uh, the son of Jacob. Uh, this is the guy who, you know, <laughs> he, he was the favorite, right? You know, after the whole... Uh, Leah and Rachel thing and the the sons to the first daughter who was not the one that was the the choice of Jacob and then of course the uh the two that were born uh Joseph and Benjamin and Joseph was special always had been special um had these visions his father gave him the special coat you know I mean you know the story if you know scripture and yet when you think about Joseph's story you can think about the amazing technicolor dream coat you can also think well wait a minute I mean, his life was filled with a lot of lousy things. I mean, remember, he had these visions that God gave him about what the future was. And when he shared them with his brothers, they all thought he was arrogant. They thought he was rude. How would you like it if the, you know, that dad always liked you better? Dad liked him best. Here's the code. Here's the fancy special treatment. They're out working in the field and all of a sudden they get the idea. Let's kill him. No, let's sell him into slavery. Okay, so you go from being chosen by God and given these special visions of God to literally sold into a situation against your will? I mean, think about this. A dysfunctional family, well, here's a good example of one. Unfair accusations, you get it. He was sexually harassed by Potiphar's wife, for crying out loud. 
Remember the time in prison with the baker and the cupbearer? Yeah. <laughs> After the cupbearer gets his release, two years later, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. In oh, yeah, I remember that guy in prison. Don't you think that would weigh a little heavier on your mind in terms of the prophecy that Joseph gave him? Not at all. And yet God had a plan. And you look back and say, wow, God, this is very interesting. This is very creative of you. I don't get it. But when you're in the middle of that pressure, when you're in the middle of the storm, I think about here, especially in the People's Republic of Southern California, uh, which is kind of its own entity unto itself, the weather we've had here the past couple of days and the, the, the storms and the flooding. And I think I'm reading about Forest Falls, which is near Forest Home, which is a special place of spiritual significance for my family. Um, someone missing as a result of a mudslide, roads going out. I mean, when that storm is happening, the fires in Hemet, the fires at Castaic, I mean, there's natural disasters and man-made disasters. And, and whenever they happen, first and foremost, you're thinking survival, right? How do I get to dry land? How do I get to a safe place? I think about the people who are returning to their homes after the fire damage and just saying, God, why? Why did we have to endure this? This is our home. This is the place that we're going to spend, you know, many, many years together. Maybe we spent the past 20, 30 years building all sorts of memories here, and now it's nothing but a pile of ashes. What do we do? And in the middle of that, we have a choice to make in terms of, well, am I going to let my past define me? Am I always going to be the person who's a little snake bit? Well, the last house burned down. I wonder if I should even buy a new one, you know? Last job I got fired from, even though I didn't do anything wrong, they accused me of wrongdoing. Do you think, will I ever be able to work again? But then there's also the danger of falling into the trap of saying, well, who I am right now, this is me. You know, what's going on now? It's all good. How are things? Couldn't complain. You know, uh, what was it? The Dave Ramsey line. How you doing, Dave? Better than I deserve. But the implication is, but you'll take the better. No question. But the question isn't what happened in the past and how does that define you? What's happening right now? How does that define you? The question is, who do you trust? Or rather, I should say, whom do you trust your future to? And that is the thesis of Carol McLeod's new book. It's called Meanwhile, Meeting God in the Wait. I encourage you to go back and read the story of Joseph again. Maybe make it part of your devotional for the next couple of weeks. Read it again. And instead of Joseph in that situation, put yourself in that situation. Maybe even personalize it to the point uh, where you look at this and say, okay, well, what's he going through? What am I going through? How did he deal with it? How did... You don't see a lot of Joseph complaining in here. I don't get the sense that Joseph ever lost his faith in God in the middle of this. But when you are walking in the Lord's way, when you're walking the way he wants you to, of course, there's going to be spiritual warfare. Of course, the enemy is going to attack. I mean, let's be real. I think it's kind of a Western concept that the Christian life is a life of comfort, of ease. You know, that kind of uh, the, the, the prosperity gospel, you know, send me $100 and God will bless you with 1000 Where? Tell that to the pastor in Afghanistan. Or the one who's pastoring a church in China, all underground, while trying to eke out a living. And we're looking for uh, pastors in our churches to handle social media 
and communication arts and things like that. They're leaving because they can't live on $150,000 a year. And I'm not bagging on people who are in the church. I mean, trust me, I'm in the church too. But maybe our priorities just need a bit of a readjustment. Maybe we lose the eternal perspective when we have too much of the present reward right now. God called Joseph to accomplish his will. God strategically placed him there. Now, God allowed for a rather unique journey. Wouldn't have just been easier to say, go to Egypt and take over. Well, how was he going to take over? How was he going to get uh, Pharaoh's ear? That's how God did it. So while you're in that meanwhile season where it's not quite, the storm is still happening, you can sense it's about to break, but everything's still damp and destructed and, and messed up, and you're going to have a major rebuild once it's all over. How do you endure? And maybe right now you're, you're in a situation where this is something that happened years ago, and you find yourself knocking on the door of 60 or 70, 80 years of age, and you still feel like you're in that struggle. I want to encourage you today. That God is in your meanwhile. God is in the wait. I think of my friend and mentor, Dr. James Dobson, who uh, had a, a situation, I believe, on his mother's side where his grandmother prayed for his grandfather for many, many years. His, his own uh, father was a, uh, was a pastor. But, I mean, many, many years of just praying every day that God would soften his heart and eventually did. And you look at the legacy then of that family influence. Just because God hasn't answered your prayer yet, just because you're not out of the woods yet, so to speak, don't give up. Keep that faith. Hold dear to it. I know what it's like to be facing the uh, the wolf at the door, if you will, for a variety of different things, whether they're personal issues, emotional things, financial, whatever it is. But trust God to walk with you and to meet you in that waiting season. Carol McLeod's book, Meanwhile, is a great resource for that. We're giving away a copy right now. Teresa's got all the information when you call her at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Now, I mentioned that whole prosperity thing, and there have been a lot of people in the inside and outside the church, but especially inside the church, who over the course of time have given the uh, idea that if you give to God, you're going to get a lot in return. <laughs> I will bless you if you, you know, Scripture says, trust me in this, I get it. But how many pastors these days are teaching that, that the tithe is biblical, that it should be at least 10%, that the offering should be, you know, commensurate with that? There's a new study from Barna Research. This is not George Barna's group. It's uh, uh, the Barna Company uh, and their state of generosity. And they found the number of Americans who identify as Christian and give 10% of their income to the church is dropping to an all-time low. But is that because of the way they believe or because of what their pastors are teaching them? Let's get into this study on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income 
inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, uh, taking your calls at 800-227-5278. Carol McLeod's book, uh, Meanwhile, is a great resource for anyone who's struggling right now. And the phone lines are open. If you would like a copy, we've got one to give away. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. This interesting uh, report with regard to something that's been a staple in the church for, obviously, as long as there's been a church, uh, reminds me of the fact that the more things change, the more they stay the same, unless we, the people, decide that they need to change. And that is something that for many is kind of a cultural norm for others. It's, well, you know, it, it's something that has changed. This past weekend, I mentioned I had a chance to fly out very quickly on uh, the weekend to go to uh, visit my daughter, Emily, and son-in-law Brian's new home in, uh, just outside of Houston, Texas. And, and the grandson was there, too. And we had a great chance to go to his school. They had a grandparents' day thing. It was a lot of fun. And Sunday morning, went to visit the church that they uh, have found at their church home. It's right down the street. They're, they're very fortunate. Uh, they got the keys around the 4th of July, and uh, Brian moved in first, and then Em and Isaac followed in suit. And within a matter of weeks, they'd had a chance to visit a number of churches. There are plenty of churches around their new home, and they found one that they really liked. And so, well, I should say really like, because they're still going there. And so they brought Grandpa along with them, and, uh, and I had a chance to enjoy the worship there at Stonebridge uh, church in uh at conroe uh, i think it's just inside the conroe city limits and it was it was just wonderful to have that fellowship and to know they found a place it's got a vibrant youth program for kids of all ages it's it's just a, it's a nice big hip and happening church it isn't necessarily a church that i would have been drawn to per se but i understand where they are in their spiritual world and also in their family world and i get it it was interesting because the senior pastor was off for the day and I, he may have been ill because the uh, small groups pastor was the guy who was actually preaching the the, the sermon that uh, for sunday and he he looked like he kind of got pressed into service which it did a great job but i think he might have been just pinch hitting but when he came to the part of the service that was always tough for me as a pastor to navigate knowing that at my church that i grew up in we had a very strict uh worship order not that it was painful but we followed a you start out with praise and then you open in prayer and then you have the profession of faith and then you have the uh the proclamation of the word the preaching of the word and then you, it just kind of moves on from there but also the presentation of the tithes and offerings after the hearing of the word of god and of course pre-covid that involved passing around plates and you know people giving their 10 percent or 15 or 20 or whatever they felt in their heart was right nowadays it's go online we've got a paypal we've got a uh, easy tithe or, you know, some of the programs that people are using. We also, uh, you, there's a Dropbox out front. They don't make a big deal out of presenting the tithe in the church anymore. And it got me thinking about this study I read from uh, uh, Barna Group. Uh, Barna, there's George Barna who comes on with me on a regular basis from the Arizona Christian University Center for Cultural uh, Research. And then there's the George Barna Group that George Barna started, but he's no longer a part of. This is that group. They released a uh, publication called The State of Generosity. And the uh, latest release is called Revisiting the Tithe and Offering. And the question is, how many Christians 
who identify as such, actually participate in tithing and giving offerings on a regular basis. Um, it's amazing how many pastors in the study do not view that giving outside the church is considered tithing, and yet 70% of pastors said tithing does not have to strictly be financial. Only 33% of those surveyed said that tithing actually involves giving 10% of your money to the church. And it got me thinking, what do you think? How many adults in the U.S. even know what a tithe is anymore? Is it just something we use to describe the offering to get the budget going? I want to dig into this report on the other side of this break and also give you a chance to weigh in on whether or not you are a quote-unquote tither. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Well, let me ask you a question to start off this last half hour segment of today's edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. I'll be, be looking at Super Tuesday, so there is kind of a governmental politician connection to this next story, if you will, because we've been used to the politicians sticking their hands in our pockets and purses and wallets for so many years. And of late, I mean, I've seen a lot more op-ed pieces in the past six months than maybe in the past six years about asking the question, well, how much is too much when it comes to adding to the national debt, uh, increasing taxes, things of that nature. The White House actually had the courage. Um, I'm not quite sure why. This may be the definition of hubris that we've all been looking for. Uh, the White House actually had the courage to be so convinced that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, as well as uh, the stock market trends, were going so much in their favor that they actually had the courage to uh, to actually hold what they called an Inflation Reduction Act celebration party today at the White House. Now, if you heard the inflation numbers, you know that inflation is still at 8.3%. You know that inflation has still been extremely, extremely high. As a matter of fact, extremely high. As a matter of fact, it was interesting to watch the New York Times, Fox News, and CNN all do their own versions of what's happening with inflation. The headlines were so um, telling, as it were. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. Um, I mentioned that uh, the New York Times had kind of a hard time with it. <laughs> that's, that's putting it mildly. Uh, the NYT uh, gave it a kind of a mild, well, you know, um, uh, here... S&P 500 tumbles after inflation report in biggest drop since June 2020. The S&P 500 dropped 4.3%, its worst day since June 2020, as data inflation or data undercuts investors' recent optimism. Watching the stock market drop like a rock is nothing optimistic. There's nothing optimistic in that. Only when the media spin it because the White House says, we've got this under control. There is no border crisis. We've got inflation under control. Fox News read it this way. Quote, inflation rose faster than expected in August, keeping prices painfully high. So what say you, CNN? Are you ready? U.S. inflation eased last month, but remained stubbornly high. That's the tagline. Now, the inflation rose more than expected in August. I don't know who thought inflation was going to go down. 
I really honestly don't. They've been piling on. Remember, George W. Bush took office in 2001, elected in 2000, national debt, $5 trillion. People were horrified. Didn't go up during Bill Clinton's administration because by the stroke of a little bit of luck and genius, they were able to close some major federal expenditures and they wound up having budget surpluses, which you all know means budget surplus doesn't mean that we made money. It meant that we spent less than we thought we were going to. We didn't go in deep in, in the deepest debt as we thought we were going to. George W. Bush had a couple of wars. George W. Bush also got stuck with a $1 trillion, uh, what was the, I can't remember what it's called anymore, the, 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 the huge investment that Barack Obama made when he took office in 2009 on a clerical accounting trick. President Obama was able to stick President Bush's old budget with a trillion dollars worth of debt. So by the time the Obama administration took over for George W. Bush, the national debt was $10 trillion. By the time Barack Obama left office, it was between 18 and $20 trillion. When Donald Trump left office after one term, it was around $23, $24 trillion. Now that Joe Biden is two years into his first presidency, we now have debt of $31 trillion. Do you think it's possible that most Americans are feeling that pinch? It's not just higher gas prices, it's higher everything prices. And it's interesting to me how many pastors I've spoken with recently who say, yeah, our tithing is down, our giving is down, our offerings are down, but the reason it's down has got to be the economy. Inflation is 8.3%. And by the way, that inflation reduction bill, even the Center uh, Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, indicated that in year one, inflation would go down by 0.1%, and in year two, inflation would go up by 0.1%. And otherwise, over, otherwise saying over the next two years, the net decrease in inflation will be zero. It's a net neutral. So why they called it the Inflation Reduction Act is one thing. Why so many Americans believe them is another. But let's take this a step further, shall we? How is inflation impacting how much money Christians give to charities on the whole, but also to the church? If you work in the church, you know that your church is paid basically on the tithes. It goes back to a, you know, the Old Testament concept of people giving their tithes and offerings to the to the priests, and the priests basically lived on that. And it was used to do God's work, you know, restore temples and things of that nature. And it's amazing how many churches will say, hey, look, the tithe is a biblical commandment. Jesus said nothing in Scripture, they'll say, about not having a tithe. In the Old Testament, it gets kind of dicey, the tithe actually coming from the word for tenth. And in the Old Testament, you can look at certain places where not only were they giving a tithe of a tenth, sometimes there was a special offering that went along to 10 to 20 percent, uh, 20 to 30 percent. They were giving a lot of their income. But the question then is, well, was that an Old Testament thing? Is that a New Testament thing? Does it continue? You know, there are things that Jesus spoke of specifically where he actually upheld some of God's mandates, if you will, from the Old Testament, marriage being one of them. He gives some pretty specific instructions as to what marriage is and basically what it isn't. And basically, marriage is whatever he said it is, and it isn't whatever he didn't say it was, if you follow that logic. The tithe's a little more different in the sense that when we look to the New Testament with regard to tithing, 
you know, we have Jesus saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. But you get the Apostle Paul talking about the Lord lives a cheerful giver and that type of stuff. So there's subscriptional support for and against a tithe that I can see. Now, if you talk to a guy like Dennis Wilson, Wilson Financial, he'll say, well, after you tithe, what are we investing here? That, that's, a, that's a given because all of it belongs to the Lord. But there are others, and apparently an increasingly larger number, growing number of pastors and churches that are saying that the tithe is a biblical commandment. And others are saying, well, it's kind of a whatever God tells you to do. This is from the Revisiting the Tithe and Offering Report in the Barna Group's State of Generosity series, published in partnership with a couple other people. The number of Americans who identify as Christian and give 10% of their income to the church has dropped below a majority level. Researchers served, surveyed several thousand adults in their recent survey. And again, they, they, they are looking to something other than the tithe as a way of demonstrating their faith. Most pastors in the study do not look at giving outside the church as tithing, but a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians believe, okay, well, whether I'm supporting my church or supporting a program I hear on K-Bright Radio or, you know, whatever it is, then that is considered a tithe. So what's the big deal? It's interesting to see what parishioners say, but pastors really set the tone for this on how they preach and how they present it. And here's what the report said. 70% of pastors say that tithing does not have to be strictly financial. Time, talent, and treasure. So if you are volunteering at your church, what is your time worth? 70% of pastors in this survey said that that is a tithe as far as they're concerned. Another 67% said that they do not adhere to the traditional 10% as an actual tithe. In fact, 33% of pastors in this survey said that they are not only, you know, in terms of how you define it, that they're in favor of the 10% tithe. 21% of pastors who were surveyed in this study said that they do not recommend any particular spot of income, whether it's 5%, 10%, etc. Another 20% said that Christians should give as much as they are willing to give. And then it gets interesting because the question then is, some pastors said the amount that you give should be enough to be considered sacrificial. In other words, it should probably hurt a little bit. Pastors aren't necessarily teaching on this subject, but what about we, the people, the parishioners, the ones who are sitting under the teaching of these congregations? We'll take a quick break and come back at that part of the study, but also want to get your input on this as well. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line show. Do you tithe? Do you believe a tithe is 10% and we all should be tithing 10%? Uh, do you give more or do you give less? I'm curious to see how many bottom line listeners line up with this study. 70% of pastors believe that tithing doesn't have to be strictly financial. Do you believe that a tithe is actually your money put in the offering plate or the offering box? Or is it how much time you volunteer teaching a Sunday school class or leading a Bible study or working in the food pantry? 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line.
Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had $450,000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between 20 and 30,000? He says, zero versus 20 or 30,000. Yeah, he says, I like the 20 or 30,000. Sounds better. Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about tithing, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the Bottom Line Show. And uh, give us your take on whether or not you believe that tithing has to be exclusively financial in nature. Um, I'm going to go on record as saying, yes, I believe it is. Um, When we're talking about the tithe, that's a reference to uh, things that you present as an offering to the Lord. And therefore, you're presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice is great. Doing the work of an evangelist, that's all very well and good as well. The tithe is specifically attached to your material possessions as it was in the Old Testament time. I don't believe that's changed. When you have 21% of pastors who say they don't recommend a particular share of income that Christians should give, but they suggest it should be enough to be, quote unquote, sacrificial. 20% say give as much as you're willing. I understand why those pastors are making those uh, those claims. The Old Testament chapter that gets quoted, chapter and verse, it gets quoted a lot by pastors. Uh, this is the NIV. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. That fuels it for a lot of people, and especially in the Old Testament, as we talked about before the break, the number of people who uh, you know, in the Old Testament times, had a 10% tithe plus a special offering for a temple tax, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes they were giving as much as 35% of their income to God. Today, you see pastors who are saying 70% of these pastors in this recent survey uh, said that tithing doesn't have to be strictly financial. If you're volunteering 10 hours a week at your church, they're saying that's a tithe in and of itself. Only one-third of pastors in this recent survey indicated that they believe an acceptable tithe, as they called it, would be the traditional 10%. But then when you see pastors saying, yeah, but what about the 21% who say it shouldn't be any particular share of income? It's got to be enough to be sacrificial. 20% said give as much as you are willing to give. They look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7. English Standard Version, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, that's good business principles, by the way. Sowing, indicating that you're not just throwing your seed everywhere, but that you're actually making the proper investment into something that can actually bring forth a harvest. But then the next part of the equation is, well, what about spiritually? Well, Paul's talking about this in the spiritual sense as well, that you make a donation to your church congregation. And what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Well, Paul says in verse 9, 
of chapter, excuse me, chapter nine, verse seven of Second Corinthians is uh, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when you look at this, I mean, think about this for just a moment. You look at the 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 context here of Second Corinthians. Look at the church at Corinth and who Paul was talking to and talking about. And the whole book of First Corinthians, according to tradition, there may have been as many as four letters written to the Corinthian church. These two were worthy of publication as deemed by those who saw them wholly inspired by God, not that Paul's writings weren't all that way. And in 1 Corinthians 13, of course, by the time we get to the love chapter, he spent the last 12 chapters, or the first 12 chapters, rather, basically uh, exhorting and correcting and rebuking the church at Corinth for being too much like the world. So it's very interesting that Paul says this because in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver, is really kind of a twofold statement. The first part of the statement is, yes, we should be giving joyfully. We, we've, and we've all had those seasons where you're paying the bills at the end of the month, and all of a sudden you go, wait, electric bills do, what about my tie that doesn't look like I have enough, what do I do? I've heard some pastors say, look, pay your electric bill. I mean, don't, don't go without food because of this tithe. Others are saying, hey, look, go ahead and tithe, fast and pray, and see how God blesses you. You ever had that season, that situation before? It it can be a challenge. It can be really tough when you are hungry. And yet you make that sacrifice. I'll share a personal story with you about dear friends of mine, like uh, one of my oldest friends, Gary Robinson, who uh, passed away from cancer earlier this year, this spring. And uh, I remember having conversations with his wife, Kathy, as we were gearing up toward the time when he was uh, getting ready to finish his journey here on earth. And she was talking about what it was like to work. They work in the custodial world and uh, for school districts and uh, had done so for many years. But she had left a corporate job to kind of just had enough of it, wanted to have more time with the kids, got a job with the school district because they could be on the same schedule. You know, mom wasn't going to work on school holidays and stuff like that. And she said the first couple of years were really tough. And she said, I remember me sitting with Gary and the kids never knew this, but I remember sitting there at night and we would ask each other which one of us was going to have dinner tonight to make sure the kids had enough food. And I know a lot of parents would say, that's my story too. I know what it's like. I, I, I'm grateful for this fact that I worked at a restaurant. I worked at a company that, uh, that used to have lots of, you know, potlucks and food gatherings and they, you know, cater lunch. And you'd see the guy who's making an extra plate to take home and realizing that might be dinner tonight. And you wonder why God, why, why does someone have to suffer like that? Like thinking about uh, Carol McLeod's book, Meanwhile, why does somebody have to go through that? And how the tithe can somehow sometimes be, you know, tied up in that. And yet at the same time, you, you have come back to the question, well, yeah, but if God says, test me in this back in Malachi 3, you know, bring the first fruits to the storehouse. He's not asking for all. He's saying, give me the first, give me the best. In the Old Testament, don't bring the be the blemished lambs. You know, give me the best. Don't give me the lame ones and the blind ones. Give me the best you have. And trust me that I will also give you the best in return. Not the best by the world standards, not the best by what you think, but the best by what you need. 
the zeal of the Lord is what encompasses your life and surrounds your life. And that zeal is based on the same root word for what we call jealousy and biblical jealousy. I use this word often. <laughs> You'll follow right now, social media post, hashtag biblically jealous means God knows what's best for you. God wants what's best for you. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to flourish. So when God says, I'm a jealous God, it doesn't mean I'm a jealous God. And if you look at somebody else, I'm going to do over in the corner with my arms crossed and, and I'm going to hold my breath until I turn blue in the face. Not that kind of junior high kid jealousy, but rather the jealousy that says, look, God says, I know what's best for you. I want what's best for you. I am what's best for you. If that is permeating your life, then who wouldn't be a joyful, cheerful giver into the work that God is doing in our lives and the lives of others? If you have a comment on whether or not the tithe is still in effect and whether or not the tithe should be financial or otherwise, I'd love to hear it. 800-227-5278. Also, I've got some interesting statistics about how many American adults practice tithing and why they don't. The number one reason why they don't will shock you. Uh, that's coming up on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Congratulations. I'm sorry I didn't mention this earlier here on the bottom line show. We're giving away a copy of Carol McLeod's book, uh, Meanwhile, which is just a, it's just a powerful read and a very, very encouraging one. Congratulations to Mark from Anaheim Hills, who is the winner of the book. Pastor Mark, I'm glad you enjoy the program so much, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy this book. I, I, if, you, if not for you specifically, uh, for the members of your congregation as well. Um, we're taking a look at a new report from the Barna Group. They put out a uh, report every year. This is the group that George Barna started that sold it to Dave Kinnaman, and now George Barna does his own other stuff. Um, the Revisiting the Tithe and Offering report from the Barna Group's State of Generosity report indicates that 70% of pastors say that tithing does not have to be financial. 33% say they are in favor of the 10% tithe. 21% don't recommend any particular share of income, only that it should be, quote unquote, sacrificial. And 20% say that Christians should give as, as much as they're willing to give. It sounds like most pastors are now leaning on 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. But basically, Christians in general have a problem. Here's the problem. When it comes down to the tithe, two out of five adults in the United States said that they were familiar with the term tithe and could actually pro, uh, provide a definition. Same said that they were familiar with the term. 22% said even though they were familiar with the concept, they could not provide a definition. But among Christians, 59% had a strong awareness of what the tithe means but less than half of those people could actually define it. 99% of pastors in the same survey said that they understood the concept. So where is the disconnect here, brothers and sisters? You tell me. 99% of pastors say that they understand what the tithe is about. 59% of Christians say they have an awareness of the tithe, but they can't provide a definition of it. 21% of Christians in this study give 10% of their income to their local church. 42% give at least 10%, if not a little bit more. So 21% right on 10, at the 10% level. 
25% of practicing Christians in this study do not tithe. Not one penny. But maybe, just maybe, the reason is they're not being taught or they've never been told. You know, it's interesting because you could have a pretty fascinating study about why we do it. I think there's just an assumption. Back to the church I visited this past weekend. They're part of a growing number of churches that went away with the presentation of the tithes and offerings in the congregation. They now have drop boxes. Those are very, very popular uh, during COVID, of course. The idea was we don't want to spread anything. So it's amazing how many churches got rid of pew Bibles, stopped passing offering plates, and basically ditched their altars. The whole idea was contactlessness. Now, a lot of pastors and a lot of churches have gotten rid of the altar altogether, which I think is sacrilegious. I, you won't hear me say that too often about certain things. But when I go into a contemporary, quote unquote, worship space, and they make special time to bring out the stand with the table and the coffee mug for the pastor, but there's no altar, my question is, where's the Lord? There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us do away with the altar. That goes back to our Jewish roots. And it's very, very, I believe, traditional that needs to be, the, this is the presence of the Lord. It plays a part in the worship service. We don't need more stage room. We need the altar. But then when it comes to presenting the tithes and offerings, I don't see anything in the Old Testament that said, take the first fruits of your crop and put it in a box somewhere. No, you present it where? To the priest. You make the offering as unto the Lord. Otherwise, you're just paying a bill. And I know that a lot of people like the convenience of the PayPal, Easy Tithe, whatever the heck it is that you use online. But I want to exhort you and challenge you as pastors, as parishioners, to not even see, I mean, the passing of the plate is a convenience. But then somebody, a couple of ushers, bring it where? To the altar. And they place it on the altar. Why? Because it's a gift to God. It's a return of our thanks for the provision that he has made for us. We don't just wake up one morning and God puts some money in our account going, woohoo, there's money in our account. I mean, God is very tangible in the way he gives his gifts to us. Now, he's supernatural, so he can do it in any way he wants to. But what he's asking of us, and I, this is the one thing I don't see changing. You can quibble over 10%, 15%, tithe versus offering, definition, whatever. But bring those first fruits and continue to bring them to the altar. Why? It's a sacrifice. And why is that sacrifice important? Because God says so. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture. We do so cheerfully, joyfully. God, I am so blessed by what you have blessed me with to be able to bless you back with my tithe, with my offering, to serve other people. It's amazing how our attitude about our circumstance might change dramatically if we put the focus where it belongs, at the altar. That's the bottom line.